All right, so we're continuing in our series through the book of Romans. It's been such a, such a joy and such a treasure to be in Romans 8 with you. And I made a pretty big deal about Romans 8 last week, kind of make the same deal today. I mean, I think this is arguably uh, the most joyful chapter in all of the Bible uh, for us. So last week we talked about this idea that there's no condemnation for those that are in Jesus. That today we're talking a little bit more uh, intimately about what God has saved us, what kind of relationship he's saved us for. Today we're talking about this idea that God, that Jesus has rescued us to become children of God, to relate to God as a father and for God, to see God relating to us as his children. Um, and, you know, as we, as we dig into this, we can't help but carry our own ideas and experiences of what being a child is like and calling upon a father. Now, many of you, you have great memories of calling upon your, your dad as your know, father and the, the experiences that you've had with your father. I, I've got many great memories, you know, being out in the woods and dad teaching me how to, how to hunt and field dress a deer. And I just grossed some of you out, but that's okay. Grew up in Kentucky. It was good. Um, just many good experiences that I've had with my father, but also painful ones. Um, many of you carry the same types of experiences with your earthly father as well. You know, some of ne- abuse and neglect and for others of abdication and withdrawal. And I get that because we all have that. We all carry that into how we hear these verses today. But this morning, we cannot let our best or our worst memories of experiences of our earthly fathers box God in as our heavenly father. We have to let the scriptures teach us what is meant by God being our father and us being his children. We need to recover this doctrine of adoption is what we're talking about today. We need to recover it as the apex of what God has done for us in the gospel. The most important thing, that we are now children of God. And I think for most of us, we might think about this doctrine of adoption as uh, you know, as an addendum to the doctrine of justification. We think, okay, I've been declared righteous with God, and so now I can call upon him as father. And because of that, the Lord's Prayer is this mechanical habit instead of this dynamic heart cry between a father and his children. I want to recover some of that for us today. I want God to do that in us. And I I think you have to start with this idea um, by correctly thinking about what that means to be children of God. Because I think a lot of times we think because we're all image bearers of God that we're all children of God. But friends, nowhere in the Bible does the Bible teach that. Not all image bearers are children of God. The day that we paraded ourselves out of the garden in our sin... We said, we don't want to be children of God. And ever since that day, our Father in heaven has been pursuing his children, sending the Spirit, sending his Son to reclaim us as his children. And so because of that, we have this delight to relate to him and this dynamic relationship as children relate to their fathers. And the more that we actually believe that, that we're we're not all children of God, that it actually takes faith, and you actually have to come to the Father through Jesus, as John 14, 6 says, the more that we're going to get out of this this morning. I love this quote by J.I. Packer in, in his uh, just magnificent work called Knowing God. Here's what he says. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much 
he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp on adoption. It's really important today, guys. Really important for us to understand the way that God intends for us to relate to him in Jesus. What Packer's saying here is that you can know a lot of things about God, but it won't take you very far at all unless it leads you to a more deep understanding and belief that you are his child and he is your affectionate father. So here's our big idea for today. This is a bold statement. Adoption is the fullest expression of how God relates to us. Say that with me. Adoption is the fullest expression of how God relates to us. This is the pinnacle of how we ought to see our relationship with God being restored. So so what's the heart of adoption? What are the benefits of adoption for believers? What kind of three things that I want to look at today? The first part I want to look at is identity. The second part is intimacy. And the third part is inheritance. So let's dig into Romans 8.14 together this morning. Identity, we are granted a new family name that is eternal. Here's what Romans 8.14 says. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Think about this. God has no grandkids. Let that sit for a second. God doesn't have grandkids. He only has children. So there's, you know, with your children, your parents know your kids kind of well, right? But you know your children really well, right? Children, you know your grandparents kind of well, but you know your parents really well. This is how God relates to us. He only has children. And let me just mention something about this metaphor of sonship, uh, because I think it's culturally important that we talk about this this morning. This could seem misogynistic and insensitive in our culture today. Why does God only talk about sons, our culture might say to us. But this applies to all believers because of the representative nature of how this whole thing is set up, right? We're either in Adam or we're in Christ. We're either sons of the devil or we're sons of God, right? Um, and, and, and this is not intended to make uh, female believers feel uncomfortable. After all, um, the Holy Spirit is an equal opportunity offender, Because we are also all called what? The bride of Christ, all right? Everybody be offended, everybody's good, right? We're all sons of God, we're all the bride of Christ. So now that I got that out of the way, let's dig in. So here's why sonship is a huge deal. God's design is that we would bear both his image, we'd resemble him, we'd reflect him to the world, we'd live out of that, but that we would also live as his children. And as we've said, those two are only connected through faith. Bearing his image is a given. Every person on the face of the planet bears his image uniquely and beautifully. But not all are children. Disobedience and sin and our agreement with it has led us to bear his image in a false way to the world. And as Romans will show us, it's not only led uh, image bearers astray, 
but the whole world to a place of bondage and decay. We are responsible for that. The, the, as the, the earth creation longs, right, for deliverance, as we'll look at in a second. But there's never been a day since that day that God has not been on a mission as our father to make us his children. There's this picture in Luke chapter 15 that I just can't get out of my mind. I think about it often. It's, 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 it's the parable of the, of the prodigal son, parable of the running father, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's about this son. It, this, this, this father has two sons, and this one son stays with him and, 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 and kind of obeys from his behaviors, and the other son just, just goes for it, and he blows uh, all of his relationships up, uh, takes all of his inheritance early, and goes and spends it on reckless living in a foreign land. And, uh, and, and the interesting thing is, um, you know, you get to this place where you see this son that's, that's in a foreign land, and he's, and he's longing to be fed with the food that the pigs are eating because his life is such a disaster. And he thinks to himself in Luke 15, I wonder if my father would hire me back like one of his hired servants. Surely he knows I would at least do that job well. He's got this, he's got this premonition, he's got this preconceived notion of how his father is going to receive him because his life is such a disaster. And in, and in Luke, Luke 15, the son gets to the end of himself and he says, okay, I'm going to go back home. And he's talking himself up as he's on the way back home. And then the thing that he's not thought about is this. He hasn't thought that the father longed to be connected to the son just as much as the son longed to be back home in the father's house. So the thing he's not calculating is dad's heart for him. And, and, and he's thinking that's as good as it gets as maybe dad will hire me back. But what he doesn't know is that dad has been standing at the gate since the day his son ran away waiting for his return. Dad just happens to be the king, sees the prodigal son from a long way off, hikes up his tunic, and does something that dignified men never do in this day and age. He runs toward his broken, beat up, and tattered son and embraces him. Friends, this is the picture of Romans 8. This is who God is. He is our Father. And in that embrace, which is symbolic for every other embrace of our Heavenly Father to all of his children, here's what the Son says to Dad. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, right? I don't, I don't deserve this, Dad. What do you, you have no idea what I've been doing. The father knows what he's been doing. And Dad says, I know, but here's the deal. You're home now, and that's what matters. Today we're going to celebrate. Luke 15, 24 says this. We're going to celebrate because this, my son, was dead, and now he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found, and they begin to celebrate. Christian, this is your story. God has not called you to focus on how far you ran and how much you spent and how much you got yourself into. God has called you to focus on the fact that you are now home with your Father in heaven through faith, and that changes everything. So many of us act out of this orphan mentality like God's still going to find out something about us and punish us. That's not how children of God are called to live. 
Coming back to the Father and embracing his love is your story. In fact, before Jesus ever began his ministry, do you remember what happened? So Jesus is about 30 years old and his ministry is about to take root. But the first thing that's got to happen is he's got to be baptized. Now, so before he ever healed a person, before he ever preached the sermon that we know of, or even officially made and commissioned a disciple and sent him into the world, there was Jesus and his father. And at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was baptized by his cousin John, not because he had sinned, not because he needed to be baptized personally, but because he would take on the sin of the world for sinners. And before the anguish of that journey began, our elder brother, Jesus himself, was baptized. And at that baptism was a significant uh, statement that was made from the Father about Jesus. You know what that statement was? A booming voice comes from heaven. They're all gathered around the Jordan River. There's baptisms of repentance happening. But when Jesus is baptized, something different happens. This voice from heaven, Matthew 3, says this, uh, came and God the Father said, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And we hear that verse and we think that's good for Jesus, right? Must be nice to be Jesus, to be well-pleasing to the Father. But here's the deal for you and I. Jesus represents each and every one of us. He is our older brother. God has no grandchildren. We are called sons of God by faith through what Jesus has done for us. So you know what that means? Matthew 3.17 is what the Father proclaims over your life. You are the well-pleasing son and daughter of God because of what Christ has done for us. What would it look like for you to believe that and live out of that? That you, that God could not be more pleased with who you are and who you are becoming today. That's what it means to be called a child of God. But we have these false identities that we, that we wear, that we live out of. And it's precisely because of this truth that we must ruthlessly surrender to the temptation to living out of these counterfeit identities, ones that say you're not a child of God. Paul was intensely aware of this temptation. In Galatians 3, Paul writes this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek there's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. You're all well-pleasing is what Paul's saying because of Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You might have a lot of distinctions about who you are and how uniquely reflect and bear God's image in this world. But we actually have an identity that supersedes any other subcategory of how you are uniquely made and gifted and wired in God's image. We have a corporate identity that supersedes every single difference through faith. And it's that we are in Christ. That means that I'm not predominantly a white, middle-class hillbilly from central Kentucky, right? That might be true of me, and most of you know that to be true. But that is not my predominant identity. It gives shape to how I live my life in Christ. 
but it is not the dominant indication of who I am. And friends, we live in a culture today that wants to make your sub-identity the main thing, don't we? It wants to form you to that image. And we as Christians have to hit eject on that and say, no, 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 no. My predominant identity is that I'm in Christ. It supersedes everything else. You are not predominantly white, black, Hispanic, or Asian. You are not predominantly conservative, liberal, or somewhere in the middle. You are not predominantly single, married, widowed, children or no children. You are not predominantly petite, fit, or overweight. You are not predominantly intelligent or intellectually deficient. You are not predominantly defined by your addictions, obsessions, or freedom from those. You are not predominantly a Georgia Bulldog or an Alabama fan. Those might, be <laughs> those might be things that are true about you, but when you make the secondary or the tertiary thing the main thing, you get away from the main call of God to be children of God. You are in Christ. And that should be for us the driving connection that leads everything else in our lives to take their proper place. But nothing in this world will drive you to live out of your spiritual adoption in Christ. Nothing. Only these friends in this room are going to lead you that way. Only this word is going to lead you that way. Nothing else will. Everything else is pulling against us to prioritize sub-identities that seek to hijack our freedom in Christ, to hijack our joy in Jesus. So what would it give to you to surrender to this truth today? You know, to allow these secondary elements of your life to take second, third, or fourth place in your life? Would it mean that you would spend less time in the mirror, less or more time at the gym, less or more time in the news articles, and more time with Jesus and those that lead you toward him? Would it mean that you're less informed about the tensions of the world or more enamored by Jesus? Whatever you think it would give to you, I promise Jesus will give you more. He'll give you more than you could ask or imagine because he's changed our identity. But not only has he changed our identity, he's changed our ability to be intimate with our Father in heaven. So we experience affectionate care from our loving Father because of what Jesus has done. If you've got a Bible, keep turning to Romans 8.15 here. Okay, so we're, we're children of God now, right? But this isn't just this new spiritual birth certificate on your wall in your office, right? No. This truth hits our affections and it changes how intimately we relate to the God that often seems so distant to us. God has given us an internal ally to overcome the inner critic of condemnation and, sla and slavery. He's given us this internal ally that Mike uh, led us to pray about called the Holy Spirit who gives us the spirit of adoption. We wouldn't be given the spirit of adoption if we weren't hardwired with the spirit of slavery, right? The spirit of adoption is what God's given us. Listen to Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry. This intimate phrase, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself is bearing witness with our spirit. They're contending, right, that we are actually children of God. So, so because we have... Because we by faith are children of God, we have now been gifted with an internal witness to that truth because we need it. 
So what is the Holy Spirit actively doing in your life today? Remember last week I asked you that question. You know, how, how would you describe the benefits of the Holy Spirit? And we, and we kind of came to this place that we're, it's not really on the tip of our tongue and it should be, right? Well, if someone were to ask you, what is the Holy Spirit actively doing in your life today, Ryan? Here's what I would say. The Holy Spirit is convincing me that I'm actually a beloved son of God. And it, it takes everything in me to believe what the Holy Spirit is contending for in my heart. That I'm actually a deeply beloved son of God regardless of the accumulation of my life's work. The Holy Spirit is actively wooing our hearts to help us believe that we are actually children of God by faith. That we actually have a father in heaven. The spirit of adoption that lives within us is the voice that's whispering to our inner critic. It's true. You can believe the gospel. It's not a bunch of baloney. It's not made up. Yes, God knows what you've done in your life. None of it matters because you're home with your father now. That's what the Holy Spirit is contending for in your heart. We all have hearts that are in transition from our orphaned tendencies. Jesus says in, in John 14, 8, as he's talking about the Holy Spirit, he wants his disciples to know something because he says, I'm going to my Father, right? I'm preparing a place for you. I'm, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to be seated at the right hand of the Father, preparing a place for the children of God to dwell eternally. But you need to know this one thing, John 14, 8. I'm not leaving you as orphans. I will come to you. The fact that we are now God's children because we have come to him through faith in Jesus is anchored in the fact that this isn't a pie-in-the-sky promise. It's rooted in Jesus' first coming. It's transforming us through the Spirit currently. And then when we see him, we will have no more doubt, church. But until then, we're all in transition from the orphanage to our home in Christ. Listen to what 1 John 3 says about this. And just before this, John is talking about the fact that we're children of God by faith. But he acknowledges, I love what John writes because he acknowledges the the, 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 the transitional process of believing that we're actually children of God and then living out of that, right? And here's what he says. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whatever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. This is what's at stake. What's at stake is your confidence that God is really your father and you are really his child. Because when you have confidence that God is really fa your father and you are really his child, you will approach him boldly. But if you don't have confidence, you'll treat him like a stranger at a party, won't you? You won't ask boldly of him. You won't surrender deeply to him. There's a battle, and the battleground is on your heart like we talked about last week. So how does our heart condemn us? But just before this in John 3, John is talking about that we have the right to be called children of God. The Holy Spirit has to, has to transform our hearts for us to actually be able to stand on that kind of grounding before God. God, I have the right to be called your child. This world says that I'm not. I'm a slave to sin. But I have the right because your son rose from the dead. That's a different kind of confidence, right? That's a different kind of life that you'll live when you believe that. I th you know, I think, you know, your heart condemns you by rejecting the adoptive realities that are yours in Christ. That's how our hearts condemn us. 
because we're in transition. And so God has sent his spirit into our hearts to whisper, to shout, to refute the lies of our orphaned tendencies. I want to share a few of these examples on how this kind of works in the heart to move from the orphanage to the family of God. These are adapted from uh, World Harvest Mission, a ministry of Jack Miller, and they're very powerful. So the, kind of the, the two sides of this are this. The promise, I'll not leave you as orphans, which acknowledges the fact that we have a tendency to believe and live out of our orphaned state before coming to God. And we're clinging to this promise in Romans 8.15 that he's given us this spirit of adoption. That the spirit is actively ushering us and wooing us to believe that we are children of God so that we will call upon his name as Abba, Father. Which is the most intimate way to call on him as God. It's, it gives you the picture of a small child crying out to their father in heaven. Who can see nothing but their father and their dependence on him. So what's it look like to live as an orphan? Well, the, orf the orphan feels alone. It's full of self-concern, lacks intimacy with God. But the child of God has a growing assurance that God is really my loving heavenly father in the face even of uncertainty. The orphan lives on a scoreboard like we talked about last week. A scoreboard of successes, a scoreboard of failures, needing to look good to be right in order to experience happiness and the joy of the Lord. But the child of God is learning to live in a daily, conscious, growing partnership with God that is not driven by fear. Remember what we said last week? Fear-driven obedience is not from the Lord. It's not. The kind of obedience that the Lord delights in is the kind that comes out of a pure heart, right? One that knows that we're loved, not one that's working for love. The orphan feels condemned, guilty, unworthy before God, and others fearing being found out. The child of God feel, feels loved, forgiven, and totally accepted because of how Jesus has covered sin and extended righteousness. The, the orphan is defensive, finds it difficult to slow down and listen long enough to be searched and known by God and others. Friends, are you defensive this morning? Is your flesh just super prickly, just on edge all the time? you might be living more like an orphan than you realize. Because the child of God is open to criticism, is open to consciously stand in Christ's perfection instead of trying to prove their own. The child of God is able to examine their own unbelief, to take inventory, to surrender the idols of our own hearts. We've got nothing to prove anymore. The orphan puts forth unbelieving effort, trusts far more in their own ability and intuition, and therefore what we surrender is actual spiritual power that we've been talking about that's birthed out of our own weakness and dependence. But the child of God is trusting less and less in self and more and more in the Holy Spirit and has a daily conscious growing reliance upon God. You're getting the picture here. God invites us to cry out to him in the affectionate cry of a child. And that word Abba, Abba Father, is an intimate term that relates to this small child crying out to a father for help. When is the last time you cried out to your father in heaven in your time of need instead of getting to work on your own? J.I. Packer goes on to say this in Knowing God. He says, in adoption... God takes us into his family and fellowship, and he establishes us as children and heirs. 
Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. When was the last time you described your relationship with God like that? Closeness, intimacy, affection, generosity. When was the last time that your Father in heaven was that to you? He goes on to say this, to be right with God the judge is a great thing. It's great to be innocent. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is far greater. What are the lies that you believe that take you out of the spirit of adoption this morning? Those are the ways that your heart is condemning you, friend. Those are the things that the spirit of adoption wants to beat down and take out of your heart. (laughs) You have an advocate. You have an inner ally that longs for you to intimately relate to your Father in heaven. But not only do we have this identity shift, this ability to be intimate before God and therefore vulnerable before others, but we also have an inheritance. There's this future promise that God has given to us. Adoption has an already dimension to it, right? Verse 14 talks about that. We are sons of God, right? It's, it's a present reality by faith. But adoption also has this not yet dimension to it that verse 23 talks about. So we are heirs awaiting our inheritance. The spirit that God has given to us in our hearts, the spirit of adoption, is the first fruits of that inheritance. It's guaranteeing the harvest to follow, right? Like it's it's the seeds of the promise in us. But the spirit of of God assures us that we are God's children. But it also assures us that we're heirs, that we're just hitting at the edges of what God has in store for us. Our adoption is true and it's real, but it's not yet complete. We aren't home yet. The Spirit is our guarantee that God is going to bring us home fully into his family. And then when we see him face to face, when our hope of adoption is consummated with the return of Jesus and the eradication of sin through judgment, we will have no more doubt. Romans 8, 17 through 25. So if we're children, that means something. We're also heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us in Christ Jesus. So so if we're going to share in Christ's joy, we're going to have to share in his sufferings. If we're going to be united with him in the resurrection, we have to be united with him in the crucifixion, right? So what are the sufferings of Christ? And how do you know that you're entering into them? Well, sure, we have the crucifixion, right? There's there physical trauma in the sufferings of Christ. Jesus suffered the scourging and the cross. And, and all of those things desire to, you know, to throw him off the mission. I mean, even at the beginning of his ministry, you remember when he goes uh, and, he's, and he's preaching in his hometown, uh, Nazareth. And uh, he goes in and he, he's quoting Isaiah uh, 61. Uh, and, and, he, and he says, hey, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then you know what happens next? They take him out of the synagogue and they take him to a cliff and they try to throw him off of it, right? They've always been against him and he disappears in their midst because his time has not yet come, right? 
So there's, there's this physical element, and, and believers around the world suffer the physical effects, the physical sufferings of Christ. Most of us in the United States of America are not, are not suffering those. And so I don't want you to misunderstand the fact that you're not physically suffering, that, that it means you're not entering into the sufferings of Christ. Because the sufferings of Christ are kind of multidimensional. There's emotional trauma, right? Jesus was abandoned by his closest friends. Maybe you can relate more to that. Jesus was ridiculed by spiritual leaders of the day. Jesus was rejected by the government. Jesus was being misunderstood and accused of heresy, and the list goes on and on and on. And those are things that Christians can relate to. The worldview of the Christian is not the mainstream worldview today, right? You're going to suffer because of that. You're going to enter the sufferings of Christ because you believe the word of God. In fact, if you don't enter into the sufferings of Christ, you might not believe the word of God, right? It's going to happen because Christianity is so countercultural. But not only that, Jesus experiences the hardest thing of all, and we hit at the edges of this sometimes, but spiritual abandonment. So it builds all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, the sufferings of Christ, and when the, the hardest suffering of Jesus presented itself, which was abandonment by his Father in heaven. Do you remember what Jesus says in the garden? He uses that really intimate language, you remember? He says, Abba, Father, Mark 14, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Here's the difference in your sufferings and the sufferings of Christ. You will never, ever, ever experience a day where God abandons you. Never. Jesus suffered that for us. That's what we recited in the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell. He was spiritually separate from his Father in heaven. And he knew that his Father's plan was the plan that had to happen so that we could become the children of God. These are the hardest words that Jesus ever had to pray to his Father in heaven. But he did it so that we could call upon God as our Father too. And by God's grace, the suffering of spiritual separation will never be a suffering that we have to enter into with God. Even in our hardest moments that seem as dark as they might be, that work is finished. But to follow Jesus, we will suffer with him because we cannot share in his joy without sharing in his suffering. Maybe your honesty will be taken advantage of. Maybe your family and friends will think you're a spiritual nut job, right? I don't know what it is for you, but you're going to suffer with Jesus. But the scriptures say, when you think about your suffering, at the end of time, it's not even going to be comparable to the joy that you're going to have because you're the children of God. And so we look at it and we face the sufferings of whatever it is for us in this day with confidence that it's never going to lead to our separation from our Father in heaven. But it's not just us that suffers. Close with talking about creation here. Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing. And we've been given dominion of creation, right? We're kind of the... The, the, the crown of creation, right? We bear his image. We've been given dominion is what Genesis tells us to care for uh, and to sustain uh, and to, and to uh, cultivate creation, right? 
cultural mandate. He says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. Creation didn't sign up for this, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself, everything that God's made that doesn't even bear his image, will be set free from its bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in this hope we were saved. For hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That's where we're at today. And I think we forget that while we are, you know, kind of the, the, the crown of his creation, we bear his image, that he's literally entrusted to us all things. And all things hold together in Jesus. But all of creation literally means everything that God has made. Everything that God has made is longing for Jesus to return. That, that language of, of ch- the, 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 the pain of childbirth, you know, longing, all of that is, cre- that's, that's Genesis language, isn't it? That's language that's longing to be redeemed and restored from the pain of the fall. All of creation is crying out, Jesus, come back. Make all things new. The created order's chaotic, right? You've got tornadoes and hurricanes and floods, droughts and earthquakes, death, unruly animals and fish, crashing stars and planets. Creation's chaotic. God has sustained it by his grace just enough for us to hear about and receive Jesus. But that chaos must end, and it will end when Christ returns. We, with the world, groan in many, many, many ways. And we don't always cooperate with God's design, right? We don't always help the planet flourish, right? But here's what God's done in our longing. He's given us his image. You and I have the first fruits of the spirit, and that's the spirit of adoption. And while our adoption is already, it's not yet. And what we hope for, which is this liberated body, right, this body that doesn't decay anymore, this body that doesn't die, this soul that's not discouraged, we, we hope for that. We hope to be liberated. We want to be in harmony with God. All of creation wants that. But we don't have it yet. So what are we going to do now, church? We wait for God and trust for the spirit of adoption that he's put in us by faith to change and transform us because we are living more and more out of our relationship with him, which in turn is changing how we live in and experience this world and how we lead our lives. John Owen once said this, if the love of a father will not make a child delight in him, what will? It's my question to you today. If the love of a father who gave his only son so that you could be called the children of God will not make your heart delight, what else is there? Our prayer is that your heart would be warmed and wooed and drawn toward Jesus this morning because you're the children of God. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.